Isaiah the prophet spoke into a situation of despair and of huge changes on the world stage. There were large and powerful empires rising on the back of new technology and and new prosperity. Up to that point, there'd been a number of small city-states, and they'd grown into slightly larger nation-states, but they were declining as these big empires were rising. The glory days of Israel, the ten northern tribes, they were fading fast. And Judah's position to the south would have felt very precarious uh, as they were caught between Egypt to the south, vying for power over the region with Assyria in the north. And while they were doing their stuff, Babylon was rising in the east. And in a changing world, feeling very insecure, people needed a message of hope. We live in a world that's changing very quickly, don't we? Uh, we talk a lot about security, mainly because we don't have much. Uh, you know, and Luke, you look at all sorts of areas of our life, and our security that was known um, 30, 40, 50 years ago is, is a thing of the past. Secure employment uh, went, went, by the way, when I was still at school in the early 1980s. Um, you know, job for life. And now, no, who wants a job for life now? No one wants a job that's going to last decades. Yeah. But it does make it a bit more, less secure. Uh, many children at school today will do a job that no one's yet thought of using technology that's not yet been invented. Secure family life went a long time ago as well. Um, and you look around at our society today and think, well, how many families are made up of this complexity of parents and and the children and their stepbrothers and sisters must wonder how long the latest dad will stay around before he clears off. Where's the security for children growing up in our world now as they face that kind of a prospect in their family life and in the employment? On the Islamic State, Russian military build-up, economies built on oil and debt and the, the shaky political clutches that keep that going. You know, it's no wonder that we don't feel very secure, isn't it? And then you factor in climate change. You know, do you know, in the Pacific, in the Marshall Islands, some people go to bed wearing life jackets because the sea level is rising and it's very low-lying islands and they don't know when the next tidal surge will sweep through their home. So it's just safer to sleep in a life jacket because then at least you'll float. Today, tonight. During last winter, the Thames barrier that keeps London snug and dry was raised one quarter of the total times that it's been raised since being commissioned in 1982. The world is changing. And politicians and scientists might talk about limiting warming to two degrees centigrade compared to pre-industrial levels. But, you know, in term, we think that's safe, but who really knows? You know, we're the first people to walk on the earth ever and breathe air that contains 400 parts per million carbon dioxide. It's never been tried before, and we're taking huge risks with it. We just don't know how it's going to play out, and we don't know really 
what will happen is some tipping points are passed in the climate as the ice melts in the polar regions, for example, and white reflective surfaces give way to brown absorbent surfaces for the sun to shine on. We really don't know how this is going to play out. We are in dodgy times. And I wonder if, with that in your mind, you feel you need a message of hope. Think we need a message of hope? Isaiah is often thought of as a prophet of hope, uh, which may explain why the book is one of the most popular of the Hebrew Bible, one of the most quoted, and, and he gets far more airtime in the lectionary than any, any other part of the Old Testament, I think, except the Psalms. Uh, Isaiah received his call to prophecy at a time of great insecurity for the nation. King Isaiah had been king for 52 years. And in the year that he died, Isaiah received his call. How, was, how are things going to play out? What would his son be like as a king? And Isaiah prophesied over four, the reign of four kings. And it was a time of great and rapid change. During Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And Judah was in an extremely precarious situation. As the world changed around them, What did the future hold for God's people? And this was Isaiah's situation. So here in chapter 11, this prophecy, Isaiah talks about a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Uh, You may know that Jesse was the father of David. Uh, David was a great hero of Judah, a great warrior king who saved the people from the Philistines, who, who united the 12 tribes of Israel into a united kingdom. It didn't last for long, but, but he brought them together. Not only was he a great military leader and a great political leader, he was a man after God's heart. And, and perhaps his best known and best loved for, some of the, for the Psalms that he wrote. And the worship, and, and the, you know, he was known as a worshipper. So David was a model king, really, and if you're looking for a saviour, he was your model, he's your man. Uh, to shape your expectations. But Isaiah doesn't say a shoot shall come out from the stump of David. But Jesse. If Isaiah's readers were thinking about a saviour in the line of David, the prophet takes them beyond what they think they know. This is something new, someone new. There are three important things about this saviour who's to come from the stump of Jesse. Firstly, He will be filled with the Spirit of God. Four times we get a reference to the Spirit in verse 2. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, And what can you do, really, for good without the Spirit of God? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 prophesies to Zerubbabel, a high priest, says, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the, most, that's the first thing and perhaps the most important. But secondly, this branch from Jesse will bring about justice. But it's God's justice uh, according to God's standards of righteousness. This person is going to not judge on what he sees or hears. But he's going to judge and on, by the spirit of wisdom and understanding in him. He's... Uh, the fear of the Lord, of God's righteousness, is going to turn the world around. That's the standard that he's going to operate with. 
This is a prophecy of hope because it draws the world together into a peaceful community. Um, in Isaiah's day, and well, by Isaiah's day, you know, those bits of the law of Moses that were designed to press into God's people's hearts values like generosity and equality and care for neighbour and respect for animals and respect for the land. Um, They'd been ignored. And Israelite and Judean society by Isaiah's day was characterised by division and an ever-growing gap between rich and poor. And so Isaiah's vision here doesn't focus on a warrior king like David who will deliver Judah from its enemies. They're going to be delivered from themselves. It focuses on a person of righteousness and faithfulness who will bring an end to the exploitation of the poor and the weak by the rich and powerful. You know, throughout scripture, God is passionate about the poor to the point that when the Saviour came, when Jesus walked the earth, he had no home, he had no material security, and he needed a miracle to pay his tax. Judging according to God's righteousness means rebalancing the world in favour of those who have been held down in poverty. And I think we find that kind of world very difficult to imagine. It challenges the whole way that our world has been constructed to work, where our economics depends on envy and dissatisfaction and greed. Uh, You know, in our world, if enough people were to say, no thanks, I don't need any more, I've got enough, the whole Society would collapse. The economy would collapse. People would be out of work. Isaiah takes us beyond what we know about the world. He takes us beyond what we know about God because our tendency always, is always to imagine God by our own standards according to what we know about ourselves and to take human power, human might, human judgment and write it large. But God comes, when he comes, God comes as a servant and takes up a cross and lays down his life with nothing in his hands except two iron nails. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's what the spirit of the Lord is about. You know, we can't imagine, really, a world of equality and contentment, I think. And every time something like that has been tried, and one of the reasons perhaps why today we're so resistant to the idea is because it's failed, and failed badly in some cases, But perhaps that's because sin always corrupts every good intention unless these plans have a plan to deal with the human heart and the human condition and with sin. They are going to fail. So if a world without riches is impossible to imagine, I wonder what the third part of the prophecy, what chance that has. Because Isaiah goes on to paint a word picture of the whole of creation at peace. He deliberately links predator with prey and, and says they will live together and will, will not destroy or hurt each other. And even snakes, our old primeval enemy, will no longer be dangerous. And there's this picture of the offspring of Adam and Eve and the offspring of the serpent of the Eden playing together. It turns into a vision way beyond what anyone knows of the real world. Everything your biology teacher taught you turns it around. Uh, Isaiah is simply talking nonsense, isn't he? What do you think? 
The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Is it likely? It's a bit far-fetched, and that's a bit of an understatement. And it really is far-fetched, and that's because of two things. One, Isaiah has fetched this vision from the kingdom of God, where the world will be the way God wants it to be. And secondly, because the way the world is, is very far from the way God wants it to be. Not only have we built our world around inequality and division between humans, we've also divided ourselves off from animals and plants and from the earth itself, from the whole of the other-than-human creation. And this is more true today, I think, than at any time, as the project to build the great and bountiful human empire advances and rises above nature like a tower of Babel. And, And as you look at it, it's hard to argue against it. You know, we, we will feed seven, eight, nine, whatever billion people, even if it means patenting genetically modified seeds and restricting their use, even if it means extracting all the goodness from the soil till it's so exhausted that it's nothing more than something to prop up the plant while you pour oil on it. We will feed these people, even if it means deforestation, intensively farming animals, overfishing the oceans. Uh, you, can't, you can't argue against hungry people being fed, can you? We will win our battle against sickness, and a lot of the battles are termed as battles, aren't they? The battle against cancer, the battle against uh, heart disease, the battle against whatever. You know, we will win it, even if it means things like children having three genetic parents... Because you can't argue, can you, against healthy children? If it was your child or your grandchild, would you argue against it? It's a gift, isn't it? We will live forever. That's where the project's taking us. We will live forever. We will be immortal. We will find a way to beat nature. You can't argue against everlasting life. Can you? You can't argue against Babel. You can't argue against the great and bountiful human empire when you've lost sight of God. Because when you lose sight of God, you think you're all that really matters. But when you catch a glimpse of God, you start to see things differently. You start to see yourself differently and see how much you need to be made new. You see the world differently and you begin to see how our grasping at life is bringing death to the whole planet. You begin to see how different the world would be if it were the way God wants it to be. And Isaiah saw that. And John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation, saw that. And Jesus saw that. The reason why this passage from Isaiah is an Advent uh, or Christmas reading is because many of us believe that it was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, was inspired by these passages, uh, like this one, or or perhaps like Isaiah 61, which he quoted from in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4. Um, And he saw the kingdom of God. You see, he saw, he, he understood what salvation looked like and how it could be achieved, the only way it could be achieved. Jesus saw the kingdom of God in which 
in which people would be healed, in which divisions would be, would be brought to nothing and people brought together. He saw a, the kingdom of God in which all creation would be made new and live together, flourishing in peace within the love of God. He understood that meeting power with power would never achieve a new creation, but he knew what the Holy Spirit could do. So he let the scripture be fulfilled in him. Uh, Another example would be Isaiah 53, as he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He carried our diseases. He was cut off from the land of the living, and by his wounds we are healed. In fact, St. Paul goes as far as to say in Colossians 1.20, that through Jesus, it's not just that our wounds are healed, but that through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his his cross. So through Jesus, through his death and his rising to new life, the whole universe is healed. And what makes today's Bible readings prophecies of hope is not some sort of fatalism that God will make them come true, whatever. God didn't choose one way in Jesus and it's back to business as usual. He didn't choose the way of the cross and then choose the way of power. He didn't choose the way of the spirit, and then choose the way of wielding force over people. The way of Jesus is the way of salvation. That act, that choice of taking up your cross daily, of dying to self, and being made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hope lies in the scripture being fulfilled in us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, And so we need to turn from our ways of self-seeking, from our addiction to stuff, and from all that's in us that is divisive and defensive and deathly. We need to be made new at the foot of the cross and at the mouth of the empty tomb. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And with that living faith in God who wants all things to be reconciled to himself, as we walk in the power of the Spirit, we find ways of serving our neighbour, of building friendships and building real community. We'll seek the healing of the nations. We'll seek justice and life for all. We'll seek to reconnect with nature and be part of it, living as gently as we can on God's earth, respecting and valuing all life. And inspired by the scripture and fired by the spirit of God, we hold before us a growing vision of the way that God wants the world to be. And we choose to make that what we want to. And we live wholeheartedly as if it were true. As if we were citizens of that world. The kingdom of God, the new creation in Christ, is not far-fetched nonsense if people like us choose to become the people of God in whom the new creation becomes reality. We live in a fast-changing world that business as usual is killing off. It's a world that needs a saviour. And the saviour calls you and me to be his people, people of the world that is coming, a world in which all life flourishes in peace within the love of God. So what will you do to answer the call? Let's keep a moment of silent prayer and just reflect on what God may be calling each one of us to do.